My name is Joe Davis. I'm the lead teacher here in the garden. And we've been doing this lectionary series on the gospel of Mark. And this week we're looking at a, a passage in Mark chapter 6, verses 7 through 12. And then Mark chapter 6, 30 to 32. Let me tell you what Mark does a lot of. And it's a little bit annoying, but we'll deal with it anyway. So what Mark does is he likes to tell part of a story. And then he'll insert. He does it like 12 times in the gospel. And then after he tells part of the story, he'll insert another story right in the middle of it. And then he'll come back to the rest of the story at the end of the chapter. He does that all the time. He does that here in this passage here. What he does is in Mark chapter 6, he talks about, uh, verse 7, he talks about sending his disciples out. And then he stops, and for 18 verses, he talks about how John the Baptist was murdered. And then after the John the Baptist story, he goes to verse 30 to 32 and finishes up the story about the disciples being sent out to do ministry. We're going to ignore the part about John the Baptist today. And we're going to focus on the part where he sends his disciples out. So I'm going to read this passage so you can read along or just listen to however you want to do it. In Mark chapter 6, 7 to 12, let's read this. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. And to wear sandals, but not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. In other words, don't go from house to house. Go to one house when you get to a town. Stay there. Don't move around. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, in other words, if they'll not hear the gospel, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And then in verse, the last part, verse 30 to 32, and then, this is after John the Baptist died, so it's an emotional time. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. In other words, we did the gospel here. We shared the gospel there. There's just things that God did and things we shared with the people. Gave him a report. And he said, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. In other words, it was very busy. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. They went on a cruise, apparently is what they did. So what we like to do in the passage so that we understand what's going on, we have to look at three applications of Scripture. We have to look at the history, which answers the question, what about man, and what did he do, and why did he do it? And you really can't understand the theology of a passage until you understand the history. And then the theology answers the questions, what about God, and why did God do what he did, and what did he do? And and so all the things have to be answered about man and God, and then and only then Can we answer the devotional question about what about me and what am I supposed to do and and why should I do it? So today, let's start with the historical aspect of this passage. And I titled the historical part of the sermon, Overwhelming Responsibility. Let me explain what's going on. Up to this point, Jesus has done all the work, all the preaching, all the teaching, all the healing, all of it, the deliverance from demons and all the miraculous things, all that he has done on his own. Until now, his 12 disciples, the people whom he is the closest to, those 12, all they've really been so far as bystanders, spectators, and students. They've been watching. They've been a part of it, but not really a part of it. And they've been students. They've been being taught and trained by Jesus. 
And in the beginning, during this time, Jesus actually had to be there for ministry to happen. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The first one is theologically. Do you understand what's happening here? This is a new covenant. This is a new covenant theology that is being preached. And Jesus had to be the only one with authority to say, this is the way God is working because, you know, I'm God and I wrote it. And so what is going on is there is no one else in the world. Think about this. Could you imagine if you were the only person in the world who understood the message that the world needed desperately? At this point, that is the pressure and the responsibility that's on Jesus. He's the only one that understands the theology of the cross and the gospel. Everyone else is looking to religion. And the message that Jesus is saying is this. Religion is no longer what you need to be connected to Heavenly Dad. I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But then there's the political side. You understand that there's a lot of political pitfalls at this time. You know, you got the Roman Empire with all the politics involved in that, and you've got the unrest and the arrogance of the Jewish leaders and all that kind of stuff. So you have Rome, and you have the temple, and you have all these political streams running into each other. And Jesus was the only one with the authority and the courage and the wisdom to speak to authorities, both Roman and Jewish. So politically, he has to be the one. It's kind of like in college football, there's a couple, or in basketball, there's a couple colleges that have a rule, which is this. If you're a freshman, even if you're really, really good, you can't talk to the press because you don't know what to say. It's kind of like that. Jesus was saying, hey, disciples, I'm going to talk to the media. I'm going to take care of this because you guys aren't really exactly sure what's going on. So Jesus had to handle it theologically and politically, but he also had to be there individually because, get this, he's the only one who knows who to call, how to call them, how to connect with individuals and crowds that he impacted. He knows what they need personally. He knew what they needed physically. He knew what they needed spiritually, not to mention the fact that some of them needed miracles, and he's the only one with the ability to do that. So individually, he specifically was special enough to be able to do all these things. So at this point, ministry does not happen without Jesus being there. And what happens is the crowds become concentrated on Jesus and Jesus alone. He's an incredible magnet is what he is. Everybody is drawn to him. And what begins to happen is the crowds get bigger and bigger, bigger to the point that the crowd is so big it's hard for everybody to be impacted, especially those who are in need. It's kind of like when I lived in New York, there's this thing that happens there every year that I decided I was never going to come within 25 miles of, and that is Times Square on New Year's Eve. The rumor is that if you go there, you have to be there at like 8 o'clock in the morning on New Year's Eve. And then from about maybe 6 o'clock in the evening on to like 2 a.m., you better hold it. Because there's no place to go to the bathroom. I mean, you're, you're crowded in, you're slammed in, and people, you know, thank goodness it's cold or else people be really sweaty and smelly, right? But you've got this crowd. It's, to me, it's dangerous. It's, it's not a very good place. I would never, ever, ever want to go down to Times Square on New Year's Eve. 
because the crowds are uncontrollable. This is kind of what's happening around Jesus at the time. The crowds are becoming so big, this guy's feeding thousands, he's doing miracles, he's preaching this amazing gospel, he's standing up to the politics of the day, and everybody is interested in what is going on. So what happens is he has to diffuse the single nature of his ministry. He has to diffuse the idea of one single crowd, the phenomena that's taking place. And he has to get, make sure this message gets to the smaller rural areas, the towns and the, the villages. And he has to do ministry in a multiplied fashion. You know what else is going on historically at this time? Guys, this is an important part. He knows his time is short. He knows pretty soon he's going to be crucified. It's emotional. It's nervous. There's a lot of fear. It's not an optimal decision-making circumstance. All was not good at this point. It's not like, wow, the ministry's going great. We're just going gangbusters. We've got plenty of money, plenty of people. Let's expand. It was nothing like that. It was, this is getting out of control. We don't know what to do. And Jesus realizes, I don't have much time left. There's a lot of work to be done. I have to come up with a new plan. And he has to make some very important decisions in a situation that is not emotionally conducive to making big decisions. So that's the history. You get a picture of what's going on? Let's look at the theology. I like to call the theological part of this message the strategic deployment. Here's what happens. Basically, Jesus gets real efficient. Because to maximize the impact of the gospel, Jesus institutes a more efficient way for ministry. And also, what's really cool is it's also kind of like a dress rehearsal. Because pretty soon, Jesus would be gone, and the disciples would be in charge of what? The whole thing. So for the very first time, he sends them out in pairs, which is pretty much how they would do ministry later on. He sends them out in pairs, and they start to do ministry. And so he deploys his disciples. Now, listen, this is very easy for you guys. When I just said he deploys his disciples, it's easy for it to go in one ear and out the other and not understand the human impact of this. These were men he loved. These were men he invested everything in. He spent more time and more energy with them and developing them than anyone or anything else he did. These are, in fact, the most important people, the most important resources in his life. This was not about, oh, we need to take the gospel to more places. I'm going to give a couple hundred thousand dollars. We need to take the gospel to more places. I'm going to build a big building. That's not what it was. These were the people he loved the most. They had been with him through everything in the last two years and seven or eight months. A lot had been going on. He loved them. They were the most important thing, and he sends them away. Then he equips them with everything they need. See, it was how Jesus used these kingdom resources, these relationships that made these men effective. Jesus knew exactly how and when to leverage his resources to advance the kingdom. Just like a great leader word. You know what else happens? He takes these men, these men he loves, these most important relationships, and he takes them out of their comfort zone. But he understands that it is necessary for them to be stretched, for them to be uncomfortable, for the kingdom to truly advance. It's a good idea for me to stop now and define what it means to have the kingdom advance. It means one thing and one thing only. Spreading the gospel. 
That's all it means. Anything else is secondary. Kingdom advancement means this, taking the gospel to more people. Now, you know, when he takes them out of their comfort zone, I want you to understand these guys weren't superhumans. They seem superhuman to us because they wrote the gospels and they do all these miracles. These were very simple, ordinary, blue-collar people just like us. They weren't much different than us. As a matter of fact, on the social economic scale, they would have been below most of us. What made them very special and effective was the way that Jesus used them as kingdom resources. He called them. He enabled them. He empowered them. And then he deployed them even though he knew they were far from perfect. For example, as he deploys them, you know one of the guys he deployed, his name was? Judas. You know what Judas did later? Betrayed Jesus for some silver? You know the other, one of the other guys he deployed? Peter, who denied him three times. As a matter of fact, all these guys turned tail and fled when it got really tough on Jesus. They all went into hiding. And he knew all this was going to happen, yet he used them anyway. But there's one more thing Jesus does that I think is very important. When they return, they give a report, and he makes sure that they rest. He understood their limits. So that's the historical and the theological. Let's talk about the devotional. What are we supposed to do with this, guys? Let's talk about some kingdom resources for a minute. I believe for a church, this church, any church, to accomplish the things it is supposed to accomplish, which is what? Kingdom advancement, spreading the gospel. If we're going to fully grasp that goal, then we have to also fully grasp this concept. Everything in your life including yourselves, including your children, including your money. Everything needs to be viewed as one thing. It's a kingdom resource. It doesn't belong to us. And this should drive us to be motivated to take care of the things that we have, protect them, but also be willing to use them effectively, efficiently, and willfully. Because here's what I want you to make sure... I, See, what we do is we think of other people as always having more resources than us. Maybe it's because they have more money, or maybe they're more popular, or maybe they have more influence. But in reality, if you stop, you have a lot more kingdom resources than you realize. For example, all of us have some sort of money and possessions. Some have more than others. But that's the first thing we always think about, right, when we think about kingdom resources is money. That's just a small part of kingdom resources. You know what else is a kingdom resource? Time and energy. Another source of kingdom resources is knowledge and talents and training. So, some of you have had so much training in churches over the years. That is a rich kingdom resource. And you have talents. And you have knowledge that many don't have. You know what else is important? I think sometimes we forget about this next thing being a resource. Your connections <clears throat> and your influence. I'm always at the Nightlife Center. I'm always looking for young people who are influential and connected. <clears throat> Because I want to train them and equip them and use them to reach other people. You know what else? And some of you may not like this about what I'm getting ready to say. You might be a little bit offended by this. I don't know. But one of the most important family resources you have is family and children. That's right. Your children aren't yours. They belong to the kingdom. Your family isn't yours. They belong to the kingdom. You know how I know this? Jesus parted with what was his family at the most important time in his life 
the most stressful time in his life, the people most important to him, he deployed them. You think that was easy? So all these things are true, but unfortunately, as you guys see that list of resources, I believe we waste a lot of our kingdom resources on several different things. One of the ways we waste all of our kingdom resources is on selfish desires. Sometimes they're even religious, selfish desires. They're sometimes sinful, sometimes on luxury and extravagance. Look, the list of how you waste your resources on sinful desires is up to you and God. It's not, I would not be so arrogant as to judge. I mean, I'd want to be arrogant to judge, but I shouldn't. To judge what your list of wasting of resources is on your selfish desires. That's between you and God. But there's also another way we waste our resources all the time. Unwise plans. Another way we waste our resources, this is a big one. This is a huge one. Misguided passion. For example, politics, political ideologies. Me personally, I'm just going to tell you from my perspective, I've never given a dime to a Republican or a Democrat, and I never will. All my money goes to the kingdom. I believe that many times Christians on either side, whether they're liberal or conservative politically, they waste a ton of resources on those people and those ideologies things that could be used for the kingdom. Another way we waste them? Uh-oh, that's not a good one, is it? On church? Yeah, we waste our resources on church all the time. Ministries <clears throat> that don't do much besides cater to the selfishness of church people. Even if they're big ministries. We can really spend, not just, I'm not talking about our church, I'm talking about the church in general. We can really spend a ton of money and time on really good church. But if it doesn't advance the kingdom, it's a waste. And what is the kingdom advancement again? Why did Jesus send the disciples? One reason, to preach the gospel. You know another way we waste them? Misuse or abuse. The church in general abuses people all the time. See, Jesus knew what their limits were. He knew when they needed rest. You know what happens in churches many times? We find people who are talented and available and willing to serve, and we just keep tapping them and tapping them and tapping them until their families fall apart. And we waste and misuse and abuse kingdom resources because we don't understand the limits. So what do we do with that? Well, thank goodness today Jesus gave us a great example of how we're supposed to deploy resources. So let's look at that. The effective use of kingdom resources takes a few things. First of all, it takes passion for kingdom advancement. Guys, listen. If the kingdom isn't your motive, listen. If your kingdom is not your motive, you probably won't deploy your resources for it. The scripture says where your treasure lies, that's where your heart lies also. People do what's important to them. If the kingdom advancement is not your primary motive, you're probably not going to deploy resources for it. So the first priority is you have to develop a passion for kingdom advancement. The second thing is you have to have proper core values. For example, are your kingdom resources for church, for legacy, 
or is it for a kingdom? Let me give you an example. All throughout Europe and, frankly, America, there are lavish cathedrals with beautifully sculpted statues and paintings and gold ornate inlays and amazing stained glass and just gorgeous stonework, beautiful. And I got to tell you, I've studied the Bible a long time. I have several degrees that don't really mean much other than people think I'm smart and I'm not. But I can tell you this, I have never found anywhere where Jesus said, go you there for all the world and build multi-million dollar lavish stained glass window cathedrals that sound really good when a choir sings and the sound bounces off because then the kingdom will advance. Did Jesus ever once make those kinds of things a priority? No, people in the gospel were the priority. So you have to have the proper core values. You know what else you have to have? You have to have good vision and planning and strategy. You have to know the right time, the right place. You have to have the right goals for the right reasons, just like Jesus did. And then there's sacrifice and courage. If deployment comes with no risk or increases your own comfort, you know what? It's probably not kingdom related. Let me say that again. If your deployment of kingdom resources comes without sacrifice or discomfort, it's probably not kingdom related. Did Jesus send his guys first class? He didn't say, okay, listen, get in your chariots. I got really nice chariots for you. It's got a Coke dispenser right here. It's got satellite radio. It's got some good chrome rims. You guys go and have a great time and share the gospel. He said, go with just one pair of clothes and sandals and a staff. Don't even pack food. Just go and preach. So how should we view all this? What is the standard as individuals, as a church? As I close, I'm going to give you a really scary example. Are you ready? Let me tell you about this guy, David Livingston. I did some reading about him this weekend. My my wife and I had breakfast on Saturday mornings, and we were talking about David Livingston. What an amazing guy. I read pages and pages on him, and I tried to narrow it down just to about four sentences. Listen carefully to who David Livingston was. He was born on March 19, 1813. He died on May 1, 1873. He was a Scottish medical missionary and an explorer in Africa. His meeting with H.M. Stanley on December, or November 10th, 1871, gave rise to a very popular pr- quotation. Dr. Livingston, I presume you all ever heard that phrase? It's referred to this missionary. Because what was going on, there was this rumor about this white guy down in Africa who stood out like a sore thumb because he was the only white guy there ministering to the African native, native people. And people were going around, who is this white guy, Livingston? And so this guy was exploring, trying to find him. And he walks up on this crowd and he sees one tall white guy standing out. He says, you're Dr. Livingston, I presume. You look like a Livingston. You look more like a Livingston than anyone else around you. So I'm assuming you're Dr. Livingston. Listen to this. Livingston was one of the most popular national heroes of the late 19th century in Britain. He was a Protestant missionary, a martyr with an incredible, ridiculously incredible rags-to-riches story. He was a scientific investigator, an explorer. He was an imperial reformer. He was an anti-slavery crusader. His fame as an explorer and his missionary travels, and later on, his quote-unquote disappearance, really what his disappearance was, him saying, I'm going to live here forever and not talk to anybody outside. His disappearance and later on his death in Africa 
and a recognition of him as a national hero in 1874 led to the founding of the most several major, most central African Christian missionary initiatives. He was kind of like the founding father of African missions, modern African missions. Right? Pretty good guy, right? I found an amazing quote by this guy that really shook me up. It really made me think, and it really made me uncomfortable. Are you ready? I place no value on anything I have or I may possess except in relation to the kingdom of God. If anything will advance the interest of the kingdom, it shall be given or given away or kept only if it shall most promote the glory of him to whom I owe all my hopes in time and eternity. So what does that mean, guys? That's a level a focus on how we view our kingdom resources that I think that we're probably all uncomfortable with, aren't we? Everything you have, your relationships, your possessions, your skills, your talents, your influence, are you wasting them? Are you deploying them? And what should, be, should they be deployed for? Even your children? One reason, to proclaim the gospel, that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and that no man comes to the Father except through him.